Colossians 3 is where we're turning this morning. Lord willing, looking at two verses. This is rather aggressive, I know, but we're, we are going to try it. Colossians 3 has been talking about the new standing we have in Christ that we're raised up together with him. We have a new life, an entirely new life. And therefore, verse 5 says that we ought to consider our our fleshly members, the members on earth, as dead to various sins, as he listed. And we'll read it here in just a moment. But he then goes on in verses 6 and 7 to talk about why is it such a big deal, all this sin? I mean, good grief. God's grace, isn't that magnified in, in sin? Isn't his, isn't his mercy just put on display? Isn't that what Ephesians says? That in, you know, in the ages to come, he might uh, show the surpassing riches of his, of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. So, hey, what's the big deal about sin? Well, we'll talk about the big deal about sin here in verses 6 and 7. It, it is a problem, and it is something that, uh, thankfully, God has a solution for if we look to him. Let me read these verses, beginning at verse 1 down through verse 11, I think I have for us, and then we'll look specifically at verses 6 and 7. Verse 1 says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you died, and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is manifested, then you also will be manifested with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also lay them all aside, wrath, anger, malice, slander, and abuse of speech from your mouth. Do not lie to another, since you put off the old man with its evil practices, and have put on the new man, who is being renewed to a full knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. That is a great uh, text all throughout there, and how he, God is impartial in his provision of grace and of kindness to us. We um, looked at this list last time in verse 5, these uh, these uh, sins or vices of that are perversions of love. I think John, John MacArthur gave that uh, characteristic or summary of that, the perversions of love here in verse 5, and then perversions of hate, as we saw, we read in verse 8, um, the malice and slander and all that stuff that we'll look at, uh, I guess, even next week. Lord, well, I have an announcement about next week, but we have a special speaker coming next time. So next time we, we have opportunity, we'll look at verse 8. But these perversions of love, people looking for love in all the wrong places. We looked at this uh, in detail last time. There's all kinds of deviancy. God has provided a good way for love to be expressed, certainly uh, in the triune Godhead, love between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but even love toward humanity, created uh, uh, humans. And then between humans, the fraternity that we have, the fellowship we have as just people made in God's image, but also specifically in the church, how to love in the church. But even more specifically and more intimately is that relationship between a man and a woman and how God has designed that to be the uh, place of intimacy, physical, spiritual, uh, emotional, uh, intellectual, relational intimacy that goes on there. And in the pagan world, 
No, they don't look for that. They look for just the, the gratification of the flesh, this passion, as he talks about here. It's all about sensuality, all about the senses, what you can see and hear and taste and touch and feel, and or whatever those five senses are. I don't know. I listed them. I think I confused two. Anyway, you know what I'm talking about. That this really resorts to or is coming from a heart of idolatry, as he says here. He talks about greed, which is idolatry, always wanting more and more and more. This is idolatry in that it, it worships and serves the creature, serves the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. We, when we sin, we're, we're looking after a satisfaction apart from what God has provided to us, apart from his grace, apart from his wonderful gifting. And he says, don't. Don't pursue things that are contrary to God's gift, to God's provision, God's purpose, God's design, God's parameters that he puts around certain things. Don't go chasing after them. In fact, he says, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to those things, which is to say they have no attraction to us. They have no power over us. They are separate from us. We have been raised up together with Christ. And why should we go back and look at those wonderful things that aren't wonderful anymore? They used to be wonderful. We, ought to, we thought that they were great and, and life-giving. But then we see, oh, that is disgusting. That is corrupt. It's decaying. It is deathly. It is destructive. And it separates relationships, and also human relationships, but also relationship with God. It's idolatry. It puts uh, things before God in our lives. So he says here in verses 6 and 7, it's because of these things, because of this, these sins that he spoke about, and specifically these sexual sins, because that is just how, how it usually is, is uh, portrayed. You could read about that in Romans 1, uh, all kind of deviancy that goes on there. And even go back to Sodom and Gomorrah. What was going on there? Wicked sexual activities. And he says, it's because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Oh, man. I, I wish that he would have said, because of these things, God's grace is just lavished upon us. It's so available. It's like, oh, it's just an ever-flowing stream. He says, no, it's because of these things, God's wrath is coming. You realize that there are so many times, in fact, read the Old Testament lately, you realize, wow, there is so much expectation, promise, warning of wrath. God made a, a covenant with his people, his nation Israel, and he said, if you obey my rules, you'll live and you'll prosper and it'll be good with you. If you disobey, you're going to die. Therefore, and multiple times he says this, choose life. Why would you choose death? Why would you chase after things that cannot satisfy? So I think it's Jeremiah 2, maybe, that he says, my people have, have committed two evils. They have hewn for themselves uh, cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And then the second thing, they have made, they've, I would turn to it, but look it up. Je Jeremiah chapter 2, he says, my pe they're, they're, they're idolaters. They are uh, chasing after things that cannot satisfy. But they, they, they've turned from me, the fountain of living waters. That was the first thing. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and made themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. If you know about water systems in the, in the ancient Near East, you'd realize that cisterns are, are the, the least, well, the last resort. Uh, cisterns, ha you have to fill them, whether manually or via uh, aqueduct, somehow getting water from, from rain into this hole in the ground that's plastered and so it's supposed to keep water they didn't make one that held water but a cistern can get stagnant you really i mean you, you need water so it's the best option but if uh, unless you have means to to 
clean and preserve and all that. Cisterns are the last option. A better option is to have a well fed by a spring. You know, you dig a hole and there's actually fresh water that you don't have that is being supplied underground, even though in Israel it's very hard water, very limestone. And yet the, the best, freshest, most desirable water is what God himself is, the fountain of living water, is a fresh spring coming right out of the side of the hill. You don't have to hunt for it. You don't have to uh, harvest it. You just, I mean, harvest in terms of gather. You just go and and uh, drink and enjoy. And God said, why did these people turn from me to something that does not, I mean, claims to satisfy, but no, it's it's rancid. It's, it's not fresh. It's, it can be polluted. And by the way, the cistern that they built doesn't even hold the water. How foolish is that? That's what we do when we chase after sin. And it's on account of these things that God's wrath is coming. It's on account of these these sins and more. I mean, this is this was not a complete list there in, in verse 5, right? Because there are all sorts of other sins. If you, again, if you've read Romans 1, 18 through 32, wow. There are so many sins that he mentions there. One of them, by the way, and we'll look at that in a little bit, is being disobedient to parents. It's not good. That's a sin. That's a result of, of, um, of rebellion against God. But he says, on account of these things and others like them, because he's going to have another list, right, in verse 8 about slander and abusive speech and lying and all that kind of stuff. So it's, this is not an, ex, uh, an exhaustive list here in verse 5. But he says, on account of these things and others like it, God's wrath is coming. He says it is coming in the sense that uh, it is inevitable. It is something that cannot be changed. It cannot be shaken. It cannot be put off. It is coming. It will come. It is a principle, as one person said it, a principle of universal and permanent validity. It is amazing, again, if you've read in the Old Testament, how God was so patient with his people. And again, the nation Israel, I guess you have to appreciate it this way, that the nation of Israel is just like us in terms of they're humans, they have feelings, they have, if you've read The Merchant of Venice by Shakespeare, Shylock is in there and says, if you prick us, do we not bleed? I mean, they're just people. They have a special covenant relationship with God, and yet we can find our, we can identify with them in so many regards. We can see, oh, they chased after this. They didn't know God. They forgot him. They didn't teach the next generation the wonderful works of God. Read Judges uh, 1 and 2. And God Judge. Now, we don't have that special relationship as Gentiles that the, the Israelites did, and yet we can learn from God's dealings with Israel. Do you realize how many times, well, even during the Exodus, the wilderness wanderings, God said to Moses, let me destroy this people, and I'll start over with you. Wait a minute, you just brought them out of Egypt with a mighty outstretched hand, and now you're going to destroy them? Don't do that, Moses said, because then that would bring... Um, um, Cause uh, the nations around us to to uh, find fault with you and say, "Oh, they, God is not you know, Yahweh is not strong enough to bring His people into the land and all that." Don't do that, God. But from that very beginning time, was God's clear righteousness revealed and His judgment, His wrath poured out or or displayed or a promise to them. Trace that throughout the Israelite experience, and you realize they should have perished long before they did. So figured time of David is about 1,000 B.C. It was another 300 years, roughly, before the northern kingdom was, was destroyed and carried off into, or, or exiled, you know, distributed into, among the nations. And another 100 years after the 120-some years after that, the southern kingdom was destroyed. But 
the prophets rose up time and time again saying, God's wrath is coming, God's wrath is coming. Now God was patient and delayed it several occasions, both for Israel, the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom. And yet there was a time coming, no, this is it, we're done, taking you away, you can't live in this land any longer. That was part of the covenant relationship that they had. God's wrath may be delayed, but it is coming. There is a time coming. God says here, through Paul the Apostle, the wrath of God is coming. We can't just say, oh no, the, the, the grace covers it. Nobody's going to have wrath anymore. Uh, you know, There are many ways to God, and there are many ways for for God's grace to be expressed or extended to people who you know who who are stumbling about in the darkness and kind of groping and feeling their way forward. No, apart from Christ Jesus, apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, apart from repentance, turning away from sin, turning and clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, there is no forgiveness. There is no remission of sin, and apart from the death of Christ, we'll see this here in just a moment. Apart from the death of Christ, the satisfying sacrifice that Christ offered to appease the wrath of God, do you realize that uh, Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, no forgiveness, no canceling of sin. And you realize a lot of the stuff that God, a lot of the laws and, and regulations and so forth that God gave to Israel related to sacrifices and animal, you know, the killing of, of animals, even back to Cain and Abel. Why was it that Cain's sacrifice was not accepted, but Abel's was? Cain offered fruit and vegetables and stuff, which is good. You ought to eat that good stuff. But in terms of a sacrifice to God, Abel offered the uh, a, a animal of his own uh, flock, killed it. It was dead. Uh, there was blood shed for for that sacrifice, and God accepted Abel's, but did not accept Cain's sacrifice. Without that shedding of blood, there's no way forward to Christ. In that regard, there was a substitute, Abel's a lamb or, or sheep, I forget which one he, he offered, it was that substitute that Abel then was able to proceed or, or, or come near to God himself. Without the shedding of Jesus' blood, there is no cancellation of sin. And for us to say, or the world rather, to say, uh, when you die, you're done. There is no wrath. There is no condemnation. Well, that's not that's not true either. It is appointed when men wants to die, and then comes nothing. We're done. Game over. No. After that comes judgment. The wrath of God. There is an evaluation that each one must present before the Lord. For those that would say, uh, no, uh, there, there are many paths to God and everybody's going to be saved. That's universalism. Everybody's going to be saved in the end. It's going to be fine. It doesn't matter how you live. God is gracious. He grades on a curve and all this kind of nonsense. No, he doesn't. I mean, he's gracious when you follow his rules and his rules are simple. Look to Christ. Trust in him. Cling to him. Don't look to your own righteousness. What kind of righteousness do you have? What do you have to boast about in yourself? Nothing. Nothing at all do we have to boast about in ourselves. But Christ is the answer. Christ is the way. Wrath, the wrath of God is coming. It's not the wrath of man. I mean, that's that'd be one thing. Uh, Jesus himself said, don't fear those who can kill your body on earth and after that do nothing. That's That's about as much as man can do kill you know they may torture you and call kind of cause all kind of mayhem and grief and so forth leading up to that death but 
when death is done, it's done. They can't do anything else. Jesus says, rather fear him who has authority to cast body and soul into hell. That's God. We're not just dealing with human wrath. As I mean, and there is there are implications of sin in terms of, hu- of human relationships and consequences and so forth. But in terms of God, the wrath of God that we stand before. Have you ever listened or read Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? I listened to a good portion of it last week when I was doing some other things. And wow, it is. And it said, you know, there, he read this, I think it was 17... 30, maybe 1740, somewhere in that time period. And he read his manuscript and read it in a in a just a straightforward tone, but the people in the in the pews were moaning, weeping, crying aloud because of the way that he presented the wrath of God, the anger of God, the righteous indignation of God toward us sinners. And again, he was not without, he did not preach without hope. He always would, would raise up Christ, look to Christ and find your, your salvation in him. The point of this is the wrath of God is coming. It is coming. It cannot be delayed longer than God is willing to delay it. It is coming at that time and that uh, hour that he has appointed. This is of uh, an absolute certainty. Remember John the Baptist when he was uh, preaching to the crowds in the wilderness? He said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John expected wrath. He expected Jesus to bring that wrath, which is kind of what led into his confusion. Are you the expected one or should we look for someone else? He thought Jesus was going to the one to lay the axe at the root of the trees and going to just, you know, knock some sense into some Romans and Jews and religious people. And, and Jesus didn't do that. He will. Don't worry about it. He, he, he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. But that first time he came was not to do that because nobody would stand. O Lord, if you kept record of sins, who, who, O Lord, could stand? But there's forgiveness with you that you may be feared, the psalmist says. Is that Psalm 130, maybe? Somewhere in there. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, this actually brings in this interesting little anecdote. Maybe, I don't know what translations you have. If you have the ESV, that phrase, upon the sons of disobedience, is probably not in your translation. Anybody concur? concur? If you have an ESV or an NIV, um, that, that phrase, upon the sons of disobedience, is not in some manuscripts, the Greek and, and the translations, Latin and and uh, Syriac and Coptic and these other manuscripts from the first, well, not from the first, but the third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh centuries. There's uh, several manuscripts. One of them that normally we would look to and say that's the one because it's the earliest manuscript, um, earliest papyrus that we can we can trace back to. It comes from about the time of 200. So just 100 or so years after John wrote. But this phrase, actually, I remember, is this phrase in that? I don't think it is. I think it's omitted in that in that uh, translation. Yeah, it's omitted in that one and several others. Another one, Vaticanus, the, the another Greek manuscript that comes from the fourth century, and other folks. It is in, or excuse me, it's not in the ESV. It's not in the NIV. If you you have the New Living Translation, it's not in that. Um, if you have the RSV, but you know, the translation I'm dealing with, Legacy Standard Bible, New American Standard, uh, King James, New King James has this phrase. Well, where did it come from? What's the issue? It's not like he's introducing heresy. Uh, if if he does say this, because 
this phrase, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, is essentially what Ephesians 5 and verse 6 says. Unless, I don't want to be too tedious, but just to say, there's no error here. Did a, did a copyist add it or somehow uh, omit it? I don't know. It doesn't really matter. But if you have, if your translation does not have it in it, that's the reason why some manuscript evidence does it. But it doesn't, and some does. Ephesians 5 and verse 6 says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, again, the sins that he lists here in that context, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So it, this is a biblical thought. The wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. This is God's wrath, the wrath that belongs to him. It is coming from his character and so forth. And it is a divine punishment upon evildoers, here described as sons of disobedience. Now, if you're a female, you think, oh, well, I'm a daughter of obedience, so I've, obviously I'm not included in that list. No, in this regard, a son of uh, would be someone who is characterized by uh, a certain thing, whether good or bad. Um, uh, you know, son of man, son of God, obviously has connotations with that way. But when you talk about sons of disobedience, you are characterized by not good things. Uh, um, disobedience, rebellion against God. In fact, if you were to you know, you're sharing the gospel with people, and the word sin is kind of overused, has been overused, and people think, oh, you're, you're just sin and sinners and all this kind of sinfulness and whatever, and I don't know what, even, what that means. If you were to use the word rebellion or disobedience to God, maybe that clarifies it a little bit, because sin gets kind of nebulous. But when you talk about open rebellion to God, the creator God, the redeemer, the Lord of all. When you talk about a disobedience, we know the rules of God and we disregard him. We're going after this direction. We want what we want. Well, that would be sin. That would be disobedience, rebellion, rejection, uh, reprobation, the, the result of sin, the, the reprobate mind and darkened understanding and so forth. And we realize that the wrath of God is coming upon those who are characterized by that rebellion, that disobedience, that, that refusal to submit to God's righteousness. When we, we look at this and we say, you know, this wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, but is God, after all, just to a judge sin. I mean, good grief. God is, doesn't he describe himself? Exodus 34, gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding and, and all that wonderful stuff. Wait a minute. Doesn't he also say applying guilt to the third and fourth generation? So even in the context of God's grace and his kindness and his compassion and patience and all this is the expectation of wrath, of judgment, of retribution. Is God just to judge sin? It says here, the wrath of God is coming. Well, is God, is God right to do that? Well, we already dealt with those ideas of annihilationism, that when you're dead, you're done, and universalism, that everybody's going to get to heaven. And, and well, God's grace is put on display in my sinfulness, so I'm going to sin so that God's grace can be magnified. No, God is just to judge sin because of his character. He is holy. God is holy both in his majestic transcendence. He is apart from this creation. There was God. In the beginning was God, right? John 1, and in the, in the beginning God created. So God, before all this stuff was created, there was God himself. He is over and apart from creation. And even Christ is apart from creation, right? We looked at that in Colossians 1, that all things are made by him. 
Oh, John 1. Nothing was, apart from him, nothing was made that was made. But John, uh, Colossians 1 also describes that all things are made by him and for him and through him. And so he's also, Christ is also outside of creation, which means he's eternal, which means that he's not created, he is God himself, and all this. And of course, the Holy Spirit as well, the Spirit as described in Genesis 1 uh, there. So God is separate from creation, but he's also holy in moral purity. He's separate from this creation, but he is clean and pure, and there's nothing in him that is uh, dark or or untrustworthy or somehow a fault in his character, some deficiency. In fact, if you were to describe what we typically refer to as the attributes of God, and that's that's fine to, to define them or refer to them as attributes, characteristics of God, but some theologians recently have, have described them as the perfections of God. God is perfect in holiness. God is perfect in love. God is perfect in justice. God is perfect in all these different things that we could list. Perfect in knowledge, perfect in strength or power. But he is perfect in holiness. There is He is absolutely pure. Nothing of sin, uh, ethically, morally, is uh, uh, controverting or, or confusing or, what's the proper word, um, adding to or, or drawing away from his holiness. He is absolutely pure. So many times in Scripture, especially in Leviticus, which oh, if you read Leviticus, it's kind of tedious, but but talks about the sacrifice, talks about the need for a, a blood a path to God. And he says, I am Yahweh your God. Consecrate or sanctify yourself. Set yourselves apart, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy, and uh, thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. This phrase, be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus 19.2 and 20 in verse 26. Uh, you are to be holy to me, for I, Yahweh, am holy and have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. That was Israel specifically. But now, thankfully, do we, well, we're going to see it here in the next few verses. There's no distinction now between Jew and Greek that we have been grafted in, Gentiles have been grafted in, and we have that, those promises. Now, I don't want to get in, it's not like the Gentiles have replaced Israel, but we have been grafted into God's covenant promises and the path that we have for them. God still has specific promises he's going to fulfill to ethnic Israel. We could talk about another time. But he is He is saying, you must be holy. You should be set apart for me. Joshua uh, is such an interesting character. I think the conquest time period is... One of the most inspiring, I guess maybe that's not the right word, but encouraging time because you see the obedience of the people. And now, of course, we see the disobedience in Achan and Joshua 7, but generally the obedience of people are doing what God wants them to do. And even in, in terms of uh, um, offerings after these different conquests that they have, different cities that they conquer, they bring and devote certain things to God in the temple and, and the tabernacle, rather, and they're an obedient people, more or less, mostly more. And even Joshua is leading this, leading that charge. But in Joshua 24, in that context where, as for me and my house will serve the Lord, he says, you, nation of Israel, will not be able to serve Yahweh, for he is a holy God. He is jealous God. He will not forgive your transgression or your sins. If you forsake Yahweh and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done good to you. That's kind of a downer. Joshua, why are you telling us this? We're trying to obey God. He says, I know you won't. Even Moses in his last, his, the, the second giving of the law, Deuteronomy, he 
almost all throughout, he's warning them, if you obey, you're going to be blessed. If you disobey, you're going to be cursed. He even has a list of blessings and cursings. And all throughout it, it's, it's kind of a contingent or a possibility. If you disobey, this is going to happen. But toward the end of Deuteronomy, he kind of takes the curtain away and says, I know you guys are going to mess up. You're going to sin against God, and he's going to cast you out of this land. But return to him. Repent and return to him and find your salvation in him. Moses had that idea. Joshua reiterates this in, in uh, chapter 24, saying we must serve a holy God, but we can't do it. We're not going to do it. Isaiah 6 and verse 3, of course, that we sang from this morning, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies, is the word host, is, is, is the, the battle guard of, of God. And he is the Lord of the, of the soldiers, of the army. The whole earth is full of his glory. That is, I think, the only attribute or perfection of God that's repeated three times. Holy, holy, holy. We don't sing about love, 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 or grace, grace, grace. Even though we do sing about grace, wonderful grace of Jesus, all that kind of stuff. When we talk about what, who is God, and you don't even want to say exclusively or wholly, he is W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy entirely, but he is in his essence, there we go, uh, holy, transcendent over us, but also morally pure, which just boggles our mind. How in the world can a God who is there, an eternal God who is pure, how can he have any relationship with me, a creature made of dust, of elements that he called together? How in the world can he, a pure God, have a fellowship with me, a redeemed sinner? Somebody who still goes after this, this, this wickedness, abuse of speech, the sensuality, all this stuff that, that is decried, you know, uh, 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 rejected from God's perspective. How in the world can God have any relationship with me? To realize God is just because of his holiness to judge sin really is where we need to start. Otherwise, we'd say, well, God isn't God. God has no uh, standing, no authority, no interest in my person, how I conduct my own life. I can do what I want. I am my own God. Oh, no, no, no. That's idolatry. That's not a good solution. It's because of these things the wrath of God is coming. Well, I don't believe in God. Well, God's wrath is coming, and there is an opportunity for you to repent right now before you receive that wrath. Well, I don't think there's any wrath. The wrath of God is coming. The way to, to escape that wrath is by tr running to Jesus Christ himself. I don't believe, I'm just telling you, there is only one way to, to get out of this mess that we're all in, and that's through Jesus Christ himself. And so, you know, I don't know if anybody's going to believe this message. Isaiah 53 says, O oh Lord, who has believed the message that we told them? Not very many people. Holiness of God is all throughout it. Habakkuk even. Remember Habakkuk, he, he's having this conversation with God about the judgment that God is going to bring upon Judah, the southern kingdom, through the Babylonians. And Habakkuk says, God, don't you know the Babylonians are nasty, evil people? They do wicked things. And how dare you, God, use such a wicked, evil, dirty tool? And so Habakkuk, Habakkuk's argument here is in uh, chapter 1, verse 13, your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Meaning not us, of course, not the Judeans, the Hebrews, those Babylonian people out there. Why do you look with favor on those people? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Habakkuk is saying, we're, we're better than them. 
And God, if you read the rest of that context, he says, no, you're not any better than them, and I have a right to judge and use any tool I want to accomplish my purposes. And I promised that I was going to bring wrath and destruction and removal from the land if my people disobey. And by the way, time's up. You're done. I have dealt with you in patience and kindness far too long, and, and that is over. Well, more times we could look at God's holiness, but God is just to judge sin because of his holiness, also because he is omniscient. He knows everything. And we think, oh, that's good. That's Wait a minute. He knows everything? The Proverbs 24, you can look at the context, 11 and 12, says, Does not he who weighs the hearts understand? Does not he who guards your soul know? And will he not render to man according to his work? Yes, he will. He knows what goes on in our hearts. He knows what goes on in our soul, our, our mind, our inner man. And he's going to render to man according to his work. He does keep a record of wrongs as books. Again, our sins have been blotted out, have been canceled in Christ. But for those who are not in Christ, it is not good. He will, God will render to man according to his work. Ecclesiastes 12, we read here recently, God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Everything that is hidden, everything we try to hide, it's not hidden from God. God is omniscient. He knows everything. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, of course, speaks about that. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare or naked to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God is holy. God is omniscient. God is also just. He can't just, or simply, merely, say, I forgive you. Hey, it's not a big deal. That's how we do sometimes when people say, hey, I was wrong for doing this. Ah, it's not a big deal. Forget about it. Sometimes that's mercy, and that's the part of that is just overlooking sin, uh, forbearing sin. Ephesians 4, verse 2, maybe says that we should put up with each other in love. I mean, just endure the relationships. Uh, but there are times when that sin needs to be confronted. Uh, James 5 talks about the, the importance of covering sin by confronting sin and dealing with any consequences that, are, that apply to it. Um, Luke 17, verse 3 says, If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Uh, and so forth. So there, there, there's a time for overlooking sin, as God has done so many times with all nations, all people throughout time. But there's, there's also a, a need sometimes for, for covering sin by confronting and eliminating it. And so God is just in that regard, not just covering over sin, ignoring it, but dealing with it and exercising his justice. Psalm 7 and verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. Every day God is angry about sin. I mean, good grief. Can't God get over it once in, you know, once in a while? Like every Sunday or something? No, he has indignation every day. Why? Because he's holy. He cannot approve this impurity, this evil thing that is going on in his creation by his created beings who are made to honor and worship him. He can't abide that. But he is a righteous judge. He, he, he will deal rightly he because he knows all things it's not like we, we need to do some investigation here we need to determine what what really happened we need the forensic team come in here and, and take fingerprints god doesn't need any of that he knows exactly not just what has happened in terms of events but the motives the thoughts and intentions of the heart god knows all these things 
Psalm 89 verse 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. That's good news. Loving kindness, God's faithful love and compassion, that goes before him. His truth goes before him. But when you get to him, it is righteousness and justice that we deal with. Now, we can we can receive his righteousness and his justice based on our own works, which is to say, you lose, you are guilty, going to hell, or we can come to his righteousness and justice clothed in the righteousness of his Son, which we receive by grace through faith. That's a better situation. If, if, if you are being counseled, you know, what, what plea should I make? Guilty. I am guilty. But Christ died in my place. Therefore, I'm innocent. I have been declared righteous in Christ. There, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have peace. Romans 5, 1, we have peace with Christ, with God through uh, Christ himself, Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we're not subject to God's wrath. We're not subject to his, his guilty uh, verdict. Uh, God's righteousness has been appeased through Christ himself. God is a forgiving God, but he is an avenger of evil deeds or against evil deeds. And the scripture goes on to say, thankfully, there's no partiality with God. He doesn't say, you know, he, he doesn't have a favorite. He, he, he's not... Um, uh, somehow especially moved by, by anybody, because we're all in the same situation. Romans, well, Galatians specifically talks about that he has shut up all men under the law, under sin, so that he may show grace to all. We're all in the same situation. We all have this guilty verdict against us, but those who are in Christ have that canceled. It's canceled, that, that certificate of debt which was against us. We saw this in Colossians. It's been canceled, taken out of the way. We have righteousness received by grace through faith in him. This idea, I'm going back to the text here, uh, the sons of disobedience. You know, there, there's so many times this is, is talked about disobedience as a characteristic of sinfulness, that God has shown mercy, Romans 11.30. God has shown mercy because of their disobedience uh, and, and now repenting of that. Uh, Romans 11.32, God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. That's that's good. That's good news. That he, we're all in the same boat, so there's no need for partiality. But the gift of righteousness comes through that. Ephesians 2, 2 also speaks about the sons of disobedience, and of course Ephesians 5, 6 as well. There's a contrast between the sons of disobedience and obedience. We'll see it later in, in Colossians 3. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is pleasing to the Lord. Uh, parallel in Ephesians 6, 1. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. And that even Peter talks about this. First Peter 1, uh, 14 says, As obedient children, not being conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your conduct, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Paul argues against the continuance in sin here, both, number one, verse 6 says, Because God's wrath is coming. Unless we think, oh, I'm, I'll be fine. You know, I, I claim Christ and it's fine. But if you're not doing what Christ is, is asking, uh, Jesus says in, in John uh, 10, my sheep hear my voice. And it's not just like I hear it, but to heed it. To like say when Jesus says do this, we hear his commandment and we do it. Or as the old saying is, to hear is to obey, right? If you were a slave in somebody's court or whatever, have a master, to hear is to obey. Or um, 
that old phrase from the Ten Commandments movie, right? So let it be written, so let it be done. You know, so let it be spoken, you speak to me, I'll do it, whatever you want me to do. But when we don't do that, when we hear what God wants me to do, and then I don't do it, turn away from it, and I go after another path, that's not right. That is not right at all. So Paul is warning us, you want to have an assurance of your salvation, but you can have an assurance based on your profession of faith, but also what's your life like? What does your life look like? What does your conduct look like? He has this uh, saying here, I guess twice in the next verse, you also once walked in these things when you were living in them. What does your current life style looking like? If you read James, the epistle of James, or if you read First John, there are so many uh, examinations or tests of your identity in Christ. Even Paul himself says, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Well, how are we supposed to examine ourselves? Examine your profession of faith. Are you believing the right things? But then what about, what does your life look like? What is your, uh, you know, spending, how do you spend your time, your money, you know, the resources you have? What kind of words are coming out of your mouth? What kind of desires do you have? I and mean, really burdensome, actionable desires do you have? What do you act on in your life? And he says, if you are characterized by disobedience, unruliness in your in your life, then you ought to really seriously question your salvation. Uh, he talks about in, in is it Second Second Thessalonians about those who lead unruly lives, and he, in that context, he's talking about those who aren't willing to work. And in that regard, it had to do with eschatology and end time. They, they thought Christ was already coming, so he says, or was imminently like today he's coming. So I'm not going to. Why should I work anymore? Christ is coming, and, and so I'm going to do that. I'm going to wait for him. No, you need to work. You need to meet your own needs. He says here, not just God's wrath is coming, but you used to walk in that way. Why would you turn back to those things of which you're now ashamed? Why would you go on, this is Romans 6, why would you go on presenting yourselves as slaves to unrighteousness? You died to that stuff. Why do you turn back to it? Why do you continue to listen to that siren call, if you don't mind, when you should be listening to Christ, listen to his word, his sanctifying word, and of course specifically, be holy as I am holy. Christ, it wasn't just his death that accomplished salvation for us, it, it was his perfect life. His whole life, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. He demonstrated his devotion to God such that his death, when he died, it wasn't because he was a sinner, right? The wages of sin is death. He didn't have to die for his sin because he was sinless. He was pure. He was always obedient, always doing the will of God the Father. So when he was able to live that perfect life and then die a perfect death, that was he didn't die for himself. He died for those who would look to him for salvation, call upon the name of the Lord, and they will be saved. We don't want to walk in those things that Christ has saved us from. The you know, one example he's going to talk about it here in, in the next verse. He says, uh, "But now you also lay them all aside." That idea of laying aside is like you've been working in the hot sun. You're you're filthy from dirt and dust and grime and and just whatever and 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 sweat and and then you go take a shower and you feel so fresh and everything and you put those dirty clothes back on. You say, "Oh, it's just yeah, that's that's, that's appropriate, right?" No, what are you thinking? Put those things off, get some clean stuff on. You have been cleaned. Why are you going back after this nasty stuff over here? In them you also once walked formally. That used to characterize you. You were a son of disobedience just like the rest. You were active in disobedience, active in rebellion. And I said, I wasn't that bad. I'd never killed anybody. Well, Jesus says if you ever hated somebody, it's like murder. 
If you ever lusted after somebody, it's adultery. If you ever, uh, you know, it's not the outer actions is what's going on in your heart. What kind of words come out of your mouth? That evidence is what's going on in our heart. In these sins, you also once walked. By the way, this is another example of an interpretive um, art, I guess. These these pronouns, in them, you also once walked, and when you were living in them, those two pronouns, them, is that referring to the sons of disobedience? When you were walking around with those sons of disobedience, when you were living with those sons of disobedience? Well, probably not. I think this goes back to what he says at the top of the ver- beginning of the verse, uh, kind of these things, which is that list of vices. It's not just that we live among sinners. I mean, righteous people can live among sinners. And First Corinthians 5 or 6, I forget where it says, uh, and even Jesus in, in John... I forget where he says, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to allow them to be sanctifying influences in the world. And he says a similar thing. Uh, you, you can't get out of this world. We're still living and dealing with, with the world of flesh and the devil still going on here. But we ought not be characterized by that anymore. We're in Christ. We have a, a forgiveness. We have a, a true relationship with him. You also you once walked in these things. You were living in these things. Just saying your conduct, your whole aspect of life was based on that uh, state of rebellion against God. He spoke about it earlier in, in chapter 2, or chapter 1, about the enmity that we have, hostile, hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds, and all these things. We don't want to walk in that manner anymore. Now we can walk in newness of life. We used to walk in deadness. Now we can walk in newness of life. We can walk properly. Romans 13, 13 says, walking properly in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness and all these things. This was what used to be true about us. It's not true of us anymore if you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you have the expectation of God's wrath. But hey, today is the day of salvation. Look to Christ, run to him, and live in his name. There are some other things I would love to talk about. Maybe we'll have to bring that in next time as we as we have opportunity. But for now, we need to be done. Our Father in heaven, we're grateful for the salvation we have, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, not just a little redemption, but a perfect, complete redemption, and something that deals uh, not just externally cleaning us up on the outside, but cleaning us up, giving us a new soul, a new heart, a heart that wants to please you, still struggles. We're still dealing with the, uh, or needing to regard ourselves as dead to our earthly members, dead to the, the uh, passions, the sensuality of our, of our flesh. And, and of course, what goes on in the world and the, the uh, temptation that Satan inspires and the demons teach and, and lead us into. But we pray that we would stand firm, as Paul has been claiming or, or promoting all through this letter to the Colossians. Stand firm in Christ. Uh, remember your, what you've been saved from. Remember that you have received an inheritance with the saints in light, that you have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of you, the son of your love, that we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, that we have a reconciliation, no longer at enmity against you, but now at peace with you, and we can have peace with each other. All these things and more are the salvation that's available to us. We pray for those who are not in Christ that that expectation of your wrath is coming. We pray that that would enliven them to act upon the gospel, to believe the gospel, to embrace Christ as 
Savior and Lord, to live, to commit, to live, to honor Him and to please Him. We are grateful that you are a persevering God, a faithful God. You honor your promises. You honor the things that you've spoken to us. You honor the work that you've already begun in us. You've given us your Holy Spirit. And He is active in our lives. We pray that we would walk in the Spirit, not carry out the desires of the flesh. We pray that we would prosper and bear fruit for Christ. Even today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.